When you think about your life, I wonder what metaphor you would use to be. Hopes that you nurse for your life. And if you were in pre-primary school and drawing one of those great pictures that the children do, what sort of picture would you draw that would say, this is what I would love my life to develop into? I think only disturbed people would draw images like a a prison cell or a, a swamp or quicksand or the bottom of a mine shaft or a damp, dark, bat-filled cave. No, our hopes for the future are positive and bright. We rather say things like a tree planted by rivers of living water, a tree bearing fruit, a fertile garden or a fountain of life. These are the things that we really want for our lives. I happen to be the pastor of congregational care in this church, and uh, this is a passion of mine. How do these things come about? What is there to help make my life develop along the lines that I, I have as a significant hope? Where have others exceeded, and how can they help me? And so we are planning every second and fourth Sunday at Mike Duffy's bar in downtown Kirkwood a sharing life night where people can tell their life stories. We can have a bit of teaching along the lines of cares and so on, but mostly to hear a life story in all its richness. And in that we will learn about ourselves and something of the dynamics of God's grace. And our first expedition leader, because this will be an expedition, will be uh, my dear brother Joe Potterbaum. Joe, just give us a quick introduction to what you'll tease us to come out. Thank you, Anton. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Joe Potterbaum. My wife, Michelle, and I have been members here at Green Tree for 10 years. Uh, for those of you that come early enough for the donuts, you might see my six children and I raiding the donuts on Sunday morning. Um, Twenty years ago, uh, my life was very different from what it is today. Uh, when Anton was talking about life here and how you would paint it, my uh, picture that I was painting was a lot different than what it is. In September of 1987, I was awakened in the middle of the night by a couple of men banging at my front door saying my house was on fire. I woke up in a stupor at 2.35 in the morning and said, I guess I better get moving. There's smoke around and I came downstairs and there was a fire going on in my house. Well, my house was destroyed that night. But it led to an amazing God who eventually saved my soul and brought me to where I am today. Uh, Anton has asked me to share my story at Mike Duffy's uh, next Sunday night. I'd encourage you all to come, to be encouraged, to bring some friends who might uh, be more comfortable in a bar than in church, and know that uh, the Holy Spirit will stir all of our hearts. Thank you, Joe. What metaphor does Jesus use of life? 
<clears throat> here's, here's one. He uses many, but this one is uh, really powerful. In John chapter 7, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. What is this last day, this great day? And of what feast? Well, even in America, we keep our memories green and alive by festivity. And so we have July the 4th, we have Memorial Day, we have Christmas and Easter as Christian festivities, and you have your family festivities. Well, the nation of Israel had many such festivities, and this one was called the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was celebrating the history of the nation when God brought some five million slaves out of Egypt and sustained them for 40 years in a desert before they came to the promised land. They lived in tabernacles, which are booths made of branches like teepees. And so that's where it gets its name from. And they celebrated God's provision for eight days. Every morning, the great high priest would dress up in all his full regalia, and the priests would get into their impressive priestly garb. There would be trumpets blowing, and they came down from the temple and marched through the streets of Jerusalem, and all the shops closed, and everybody came out to see. Think of the Kirkwood Harvest Festival, if you want a picture in your mind. And the great high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam through the cheering throng and dip a jug of water, a pitcher of water, go back to the temple and pour it at the foot of the altar. And everybody rejoiced because they remembered what God had done in their history. And it was astonishing. But on the last day, that great day of the feast, the same procession, but instead of Dipping a pitcher of water, the high priest walked past the pool of Siloam and went back to the temple, and it was a dry day. And at the moment when he would normally have poured the water at the foot of the altar, there would have been a holy hush of awe upon every waiting heart. Because now they remembered that there was a promise that God would provide Messiah. And Messiah would be the spiritual water of which the physical water in the wilderness was merely a symbol something much greater was going to happen. And the spiritual thirst of every person would be met in the coming of the Messiah. 
Now picture it, dear friend. The holy hush of the moment. When the promise of God is prominent and every yearning, expectant heart is reaching out saying, Oh God, when will it be? I am so thirsty. I want my life to be a river of living water, but it's this swamp. When can I expect that this hope will be realized? And in that holy hush, Jesus steps to some prominent place and cries out, If any man is thirsty, let him come unto let him come unto let him come unto me and drink. And out of his inmost being, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And I suggest to you the presence of Jesus crying into your heart at this very moment concerning your thirst. You are any man, aren't you? If you are thirsty, he invites you to come to him and drink. But what is this inmost being in this heart? Let's have a look at what it is in the Bible. This is how it's been analyzed by a scholar called Wheeler Robinson. It is used 29 times in the physical sense or a figurative sense allied to the physical. It is used 257 times of personality in a life or character in general. 166 times it is used of the emotions. 204 times it is used of intellectual activity. For example, as a man thinketh in his heart, you think in your heart, so is he. And it is used 195 times of volition or of purpose. So another scholar called J.D. Douglas summarizes this all and says, the heart was essentially the whole man with all his attributes, physical, intellectual, and psychological. The heart was conceived of as the governing center. It is the heart which makes a person what he is and governs all of, of her actions, character, personality, will, and mind. It's the real you. We can put it in a little diagram that looks a bit like this. You are a thinking, acting, feeling person. But that thinking, acting, and feeling is all related to your heart. And when God originally created the human race, he created them within the context of the Holy Spirit of God or of communion with himself. And so Adam and Eve communed with God as naturally as you and I watch our televisions. And every evening God came down and walked with them. What a delicious thought. In the cool of the evening and they talked together face to face. But the heart is a bit like a walnut, you know. You crack the shell and then you go down 
and there you want to penetrate to a soft and a juicy kernel. So let's go one further and have a look at what else is true. That which I showed you on the previous slide is merely the outward manifestation of the real you. There is also an inside or a, a silent witness to everything you do. You're aware of it in the evenings just before you fall asleep and you think about your day. And like an object of silent witness, you, you even think about your thoughts. I shared this diagram with my 11-year-old grandson. He thought that was hilarious. Diba, he said, how can you think about your thoughts? And I said, well, you're doing it right now, aren't you? So you can share this at any level. For behind of your acting, there's something called the will. And behind of all your feeling, there's something which I choose to call the emotion. It's a synonym, but it shows a variation. And behind your thinking, there's what you might call your intellect. And your heart comprises the inward as well as the outward. Now, it's very interesting to really talk about this because there's so many wonderful implications there. Uh, just two, very quickly, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but this outer shell of life is where most of us spend 95% of our time and energy. And we spend 95% of our prayers relating to the outer shell of life. And guess where God is interested? That's right, the inner manifestation of the heart is what interests God. And he's not looking at the outward at all. He's looking on the inward and he's constantly trying to get our attention and say, excuse me, there's more here than just this outward shell. Let's penetrate to the heart, your heart and the heart of things in your life. Now something happened because there's more here to this and uh, what we have is the Bible, uh, what we have is that Adam and Eve rebelled against God and accepted the authority of the devil and by doing that they made the devil their God and the spirit of God withdrew and we have a new context for human life. It is the context of what the Bible calls the world, or this age, and at the center is this monster called ego, a nice little acronym is edging God out, edged God out and ego took over, and now the heart of man is, as the prophet Jeremiah says, next slide, desperately deceitful, Deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You don't understand your own heart, do you? It's a bit like this. One year we went uh, houseboating on Lake Kariba, which is on the border between Zambia and Zimbabwe. We were about four miles from the shore and one afternoon took the little fishing skiff or skip, whatever you want to call it, the little tender, and we're out just 
messing around in the water. And on the dried out trees that had died when they filled the lake, it's a man-made lake, uh, there was a fish eagle sitting. And we had a bucket of sardines for bait for tiger fishing. And I thought, I'm going to see if we can get this fish eagle down here next to the boat. Love to see it in action right next to the boat. So took some sardines and threw them in the water. And everybody's looking at the fish eagle expectantly. And then we noticed a, like a roiling motion under the sardines. And the next thing, a crocodile, bigger than our skiff, surfaced with gaping jaws and chomped the sardines and disappeared again into the murky depths of the lake. Well, needless to say, I gave up any thoughts of a cool swim. <laughs> and I thought, that's the metaphor of the human heart. Oh, it's this tranquil, tranquil, placid lake. But every now and then this primitive monster of a crocodile surfaces with gaping jaws and something completely out of what you think is your character occurs and the evil is right there. You know it. You've been there. Now, the Bible confirms this in many places, but let me just say this, that this is our real dilemma. The crocodile in the lake is the real problem. And the gospel is so marvelous that 600 years before Christ, God, in saying that he would solve this problem, made this promise through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So this is God's cure. God's cure is that you can't actually domesticate the crocodile. I saw, I think it was on Planet, Animal Planet, on TV the other night, some lunatic guy who was guiding people through a crocodile farm. And there was a monster crocodile lying on the sandbar and he lay down next to it. And I can't remember all the details exactly, but he got the crocodile to open its mouth and he put his head between the jaws of the crocodile while holding it open with his hands. Now, I don't know how often he had done this before. And I don't know if crocodiles can get a twinkle in their eyes. But I have to think that this crocodile had a sense of humor. Because he could have crushed that skull the way I could crush an egg in my hands. But instead, he bit down on the head and just held it without crushing it. And this guy started yelling and thrashing around. And the crocodile was sort of smiling with his jaws around his head. And if the crocodile wanted to do his primitive thing and just roll once, as they do in the wild... Uh, would have snapped his head right off his body, but it just lay there with his head between its jaws with twinkling eyes. 
and they had to get a big old beam as uh, thick as my arm and pry the jaws of the crocodile open so that he could get his head out there. Point, you can't trust or cure or domesticate a crocodile. Can't be done. So what do we need? Well, we need what the Bible calls regeneration. Just a big theological word, which means God gives you a heart transplant. God is in the business of surgery. And he wants to take out that old heart which is dead towards him and shift ego out of the picture and put his spirit within our hearts. And with his spirit, he will cause us to walk in his ways. Now, my friends, that is the gospel. It is the divine operation of God in regenerating or giving you a heart transplant. Or if you want to use the words of Jesus, it is being born again. Therefore, the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's not a reformed person. He's not a religious crocodile. He's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So here's how Jesus put it in an incident with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Here's an actual event. In your mind, go back to Jerusalem. It's about the year 30, 31, 32 AD. The disciples are kicking back with Jesus in somebody's house. And there's a knock at the door. And one of them goes to see who's there. And he steps back in amazement. It's Nicodemus. It would be like having John Roberts knock on my door one evening. This is a man of the caliber of the supreme justice of the supreme court. He's a ruler in the nation. He's a Pharisee who knows the law like, like nobody else does. He's not one of those false Pharisees. He's a man of honor and he demands respect and he has it wherever he goes. And he's not like a whole bunch of those Pharisees who are sharpening their knives to kill Jesus. Notice how respectful he is, Rabbi, he says. It's a title of honor like professor. Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now you would think that Jesus would sort of step back and say, hey, here's a great convert coming my way. But he's rather brusque. I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What? I'm a ruler in God's kingdom. What do you mean I can't see it? And Nicodemus is entirely flustered, so his reply is sort of very 
ordinary. He says the obvious. It's as obvious as the nose on my face. He says, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? A bit inane, hey? We all know that one, don't we? And Jesus doesn't sort of back off and soften it. Rather, he ladles on more of the same. I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom because you can't enter what you haven't seen. And Nicodemus, you haven't seen it yet. And so you can't enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans reproduce human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So... What are you surprised at? Oh, great, says someone. Here we're going to get this born-again claptrap. Well, it's a little phrase that has been messed up in the modern evangelical world. And I myself sometimes feel I don't want to admit that I'm a born-again Christian because of the mess that's been made of this word. Let me try and explain to you what I mean. If we go back to that diagram, here we have that old crocodile ego, and somebody comes to him and says, you've got to make a decision for Jesus, and so he makes his decision for Jesus, and the person says to him, now you are born again because you made a decision. Now, no greater lie has ever been perpetrated on a gullible population than the lie that your decision is what regenerates you or that you are born again by your decision. Because notice this. It is this old crocodile who made the decision. And do you think that this crocodile is going to do much when... What Jesus asks diverges from what he wants. There is no crocodile more dangerous or worse than a religious crocodile. Because he will take what he considers all the blessings and he will give nothing in return. So down the road, he will become aware Oh, Christians do something called tithing. They, they give one-tenth of their income and more. They tithe and they give offerings. And the old crocodile will say, well, I'm willing to try that. And so he starts to do it maybe or just gives much less than his tithe. But then there comes the day and he says, man, I'd love a new car. Or the latest little electronic gadgetry comes and he wants a big screen TV down in his den. Or the latest iPod or something. And so he weighs this up and he has a look and he says, well, I can't afford that and tithe. So uh, I'm a religious crocodile, smile, smile. Here goes the tithe. And he gets what his heart wants. Just one example. Let's take another one. This old crocodile 
has been dabbling with pornography or maybe gone, got drawn right deep down into the pornographic world that is so easily accessible in our world. And then he starts realizing, hey, Jesus does not want me to treat women as objects. He doesn't want me to have a pornographic thought life towards women. And so he's tempted to back off his pornography. Oh, but the old crocodile, oh man, he gives a big smile and he says, so what? This makes me feel good. And he goes right back into his pornography. Now you will notice the essential difference that in that earlier picture what we had here was the Spirit of God filling your heart with a desire to please God and to do the will of God. And therefore, brothers, I want to look you in the eye and say if you are dabbling in pornography, it is time to quit. It is disgusting and disgraceful. It is a sin. It is contrary to the Spirit of God. And you do not want to think about your wife as a pornographic object or of any woman in that sense. She is made in the image of God. She is a person, not an object. And you may well be born again and this crocodile may have crept back into the lake because he's got a way of doing that when we're not watching. And right now, you have got to say, Spirit of God, I reject this crocodile. The church will be without power as long as we entertain the crocodiles in the lake. You don't need help with that. You need God and a sledgehammer. Jesus says, if you're going to resist sin, even to the effect of having to chop off your right arm, do it. And for some of you, your pornography or whatever other sin you are entertaining in your life has become as essential to you as your right arm. But the gospel ejects the ego and the Spirit of God comes in. And we begin to live for His glory. So chop off your right hand. I don't care about it. It's a metaphor, of course. I do care about it about mine anyway <laughs> but I must deal with these things therefore in Romans chapter 9 the apostle Paul says so then salvation is not of him who wills not of him who makes the decision nor is it of him who runs and says, what is it that Christians do? I'll just add a few religious habits here and maybe get rid of one or two things there. I'll reform one or two aspects of the crocodile, but we'll just leave him in peace and I'll add some religious things that'll satisfy him and it'll satisfy God. <laughs> no, it won't. 
It's not of him who decides, nor of him who runs, but it is of God who shows mercy. That's the message Jesus is giving to Nicodemus and to me this morning and to you. Well, says Nicodemus, how can this be? And Jesus says, well, this is what it's like, Nicodemus. You want to do something and you can't do anything. But I'll tell you what, the wind, ah, the wind blows wherever it wants to. And you can hear the wind. Can you hear it this morning? There's a wind blowing in this room. And it's the Holy Spirit. So your salvation is a mystery, is what Jesus is saying. You don't know where that wind is coming from. You don't know where it's going to go. But man, it's right here now. And your life is stifling. The air conditioning has failed. And all the windows are shut. And you are sweating like a, shall I say, a crocodile. <laughs> I don't know if they sweat or not. Sweating like a pig. And suddenly you see the wind stirring the leaves out there and you're aware that there's a cool, refreshing breeze. So what do you do? Do you go and latch the doors even more and put and draw the curtains? No, you open the door and you open the windows and you say, wind, come, come and do what only you can do. That's what salvation is. It's not you just making a decision like a crocodile becoming religious. It's you saying, God, I need a new heart. I need mercy, as Romans chapter 9, 16 said. And so if you're going to make a decision, make the decision to ask God to do a miracle. Because God is in the miracle business. God is the wind. Some of us need a gentle zephyr to blow through our lives because we are so bruised. And God will come gently. And some of us have got such messed up lives that we need a tornado. And God who suck all that garbage out and destroy it and scatter it to the four points of the horizon. Whatever is your need... There's a wind blowing, and it's God. And you need to just open the door and say, I can't do it. I can't create a new heart. Will you please give me one? <laughs>